0: Okay. This episode is fire. It's a little unusual. I have invited my friend, Eric Godsey to come on the show to talk about what he's learned in relation to the chemical imbalance theory and mental health. So this is not necessarily his truth or my truth, although we do reflect on how it has been true and shown up in our life, but this is some truth that I think we all Need to at least be open to considering. He is very, very intellectual and does all of the research that I don't usually do in my life. I'm very intuitive, um, and I will dip into a little research here and there to understand my intuition. Um, But Eric Godsey, Godsey, by nickname (laughs) for him, affectionate nickname. um, He is incredible. And he is going to share all of that, but stay tuned, keep listening to the end because also at the end, he talks about how this has shown up in his life um, and how it does still show up in his life. So it's a really incredible show. I've been wanting to have him on for a while. We finally just got together to record the episode. Um, There's a couple of points where the internet goes a little funny, but just bear with us. I mean, this is what We're dealing with recording over Zoom these days. Um, Thank you guys so much for being here. As always, I love you. And I love being on this healing, releasing incredible journey with you all. Eric Godsey, my brother, thank you for coming on the show.
1: Thank you for having me. And thank you for saying yes to doing the podcast.
0: Yeah, thank you. My pleasure. Um, So, I mean... I'm super excited to have you on the show today Um, and for my listeners, I do want to explain the context of the show because while we may do what we normally do and go into some conversations about some personal stuff, I've specifically asked Eric to come on the show to talk us through something that um, blew my mind the first time we sat down and um, here in Austin and you kind of explained it all to me and I'm not going to give it away, but I will frame it up by saying it's, I want to talk about mental health and I want to talk about um, the pharmaceutical industry around that and everything that you've discovered. And the reason why I want to talk about it is because ever since I was younger, when I was at high school, I had one of my best friends had a lot of mental health issues. So it was something that I was confronting in my life always and trying to understand and navigate as a young person. Um, I've also experienced anxiety most of my life up until I did ayahuasca last year for the first time. And I haven't had it since, thankfully. Um, And that anxiety led to a depressive episode and a breakdown in 2018. So, you know, I've experienced it in many different ways. I've also um, had a lot of addiction in my family and things like that. But I intuitively, from a teenager, from the first time all of this came into my awareness, did not believe in antidepressants or any form of anti-anxiety medication. Um, It was just something that didn't feel right to me. I felt like there were so many other things that we as individuals can do before turning to medication. And I don't know where that story came from. I don't know, like, it's not something we talked about in my family. It's obviously not something that I was reading in mainstream media. It was contrary to that. But I always just felt that it wasn't the I did just the prevalence of which I was seeing my friends and people I knew be subscri- be prescribed antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication just didn't to me seem intuitively correct. And so when you sat down with a group of our fam and talked us through what you had discovered through actual research and you are like the nerd. <laughs> why <laughs> I'm all intuitive and like, this doesn't feel right. So I'm just not going to do it. And people will question me on that. I'm like, I don't know why. I just don't think so. Like you have the answers and you dove in and I'm super curious for you to take us through that today. Um yeah. But I would love before we even do that for you to just tell us a little bit about you and what you're all about right now and what you're working on. Um, But as you can tell everybody, I'm very excited about this topic because it's quite (laughs) mind blowing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So to give some background, uh, when I was a child, um, my mom had severe depression and I remember being very young and feeling like this human that I love the most in the world, who when she is like, when there's light behind her eyes, uh, she sees me as like the most beautiful thing that's ever existed. And I had that beautiful relationship with my mom. And there would be weekends where she would just stay in her room all weekend. There would be evenings where she would just cry at the dining room table and wouldn't cook. And I just didn't understand what was going on. And it created an interest in psychology very early in me. And then I went to school or I went to college for cognitive psychology and I got a degree. And when I was in college, I got super into psychedelics. I got super into philosophy. Um, And I really got interested in like, I knew that psychology was my calling. And for every day, for like 10 years, I would read and write about philosophy or psychology. Like I was constantly learning about it. And then um, I got hired as the research writer for Aubrey Marcus's book that is currently under construction and it's all about mental health. And I started doing like the type of research I would have done if I got a PhD in clinical psychology, which was my first dream. But then I read a book called Sapiens that really gave me an understanding that if I got a PhD, I I would basically be a cog in a machine that would be dependent on funding from the government or from large corporations. And that the only studies I would be able to do would fund it, and I realized I would be much more free if I learned how to run a company and then I do my own research that was funded by the revenue of my company. So that became the new dream. <clears throat> and my apprenticeship was essentially to work for Aubrey. And once I got hired to be the research writer for this book, I realized, oh my God, this is, I get to do my PhD now. And so I started reading some books <clears throat> and the first book I read. And I
0: remember, sorry to cut you off, but I remember you you saying that you came to Aubrey with all of the research and he was like, that is a lot. <laughs> and that is like a book in itself. And thank you. And I'll take a few bits and pieces here, but like, you got to like actually write this thing yourself because you obviously, like I, like I said earlier, like you really... You know, it's something I really admire about you. It's not a trait I have in myself to like deeply research things and deep dive into things. And I always admire people that do. And when I heard you speak about all this stuff, I was just like, yeah, I mean, you have literally looked at everything. Uh, Anyway, carry on. Yeah.
1: yeah. So uh, uh, I started doing research for the first chapter of his book. And I ended up buying like 13 books, read like eight of them. And ended up writing like 14,000 words for the first chapter. And he was like, dude, we're playing chess and you just put Godzilla on the board. And now we can't play chess anymore, but this is really important. <laughs> and so the way that it unfolded was like, we'll make this like uh, article that we published like a month before the book comes out to like drive interest in the book. But then I'm going to get you a book deal so you can actually tell this story because it's not going to fit in the way that we're writing this book. Like, you know, the average chapter size is like 8,000 words. And I wrote 14,000 on just explaining how fucked up the problem was and not even getting to the solution. And his book is going to be all about solutions. So he was like, dude, you got to write your own book. But the first thing I read was a book called Lost Connections. And Lost Connections has a chapter where it started to talk about um, that there's no evidence for the chemical imbalance theory of depression and i have i have been studying psychology for a decade and i had never read or heard that there was even contention about depression not being the result of a chemical imbalance theory and so i was like whoa what is going on here and so then i read the primary book that they referenced in that book which is called the emperor's new drug which is written by a harvard psychologist named irving kirsch <clears throat> and irving kirsch essentially Uh, is an expert on the placebo effect. And he did some studies where he properly weighed the placebo effect in conjunction with the effectiveness of antidepressants. And it's a two or three hour hole that I could go into to explain the specifics of the studies. But essentially what he found was with the type of experimental design that pharmaceutical companies do, the... Average improvement on depression, which is measured by something called the Hamilton scale, which is a 51 point scale. And I apologize for always having to clear my throat. I don't know what's going on, but... um,
0: Well, you're recovering from being unwell. So we forgive you. Thank you. (laughs) We had to reschedule a few times because Eric was not well last week. So I'm glad you're feeling better
1: now. (laughs) Thank you. Um, What he found was the average improvement on depression on the 51-point scale uh, of antidepressants was 1.8. And to put that into context, if you get eight hours of sleep every night for a week, your score on the Hamilton scale improves four points. If you begin to garden every day for a month, your improvement on the Hamilton scale goes up five points. And what was super interesting is that he found if you look at any study that has used any type of psychiatric med on improving depression, so that means amphetamines, arbituates, antipsychotic, anti-anxiety, and even SSREs, which do the chemical opposite of SSRIs, you find a 1.8 improvement on the Hamilton scale for all of those. They all have the exact same improvement. And if the theory... Of the chemical imbalance hypothesis is correct about depression, that should not be true. And what he found, and again, uh, I have the studies, I go deeply into it, and it's going to be in the book eventually. But what he found was what he calls the active placebo hypothesis, which is essentially, in the experimental designs, you either give someone a placebo, or you give them the active med. And by law, you have to tell them what the side effects of the active medication are. And by the fourth week, it's something like 80% of the participants and the researchers, if you have them guess who got the placebo and who got the active med, they can guess it correctly. And that breaks the blind, which means it breaks the validity of the study. <clears throat> and what, what he found was, If you're given a pill that has any effect, and you know what the effects are, if you ever feel the side effects of the pill, you believe you have the thing that's going to cure you. And so you experience the placebo effect. And that sent me down a rabbit hole, where I began to read this book called Anatomy of an Epidemic by the author Robert Whitaker. And this dude Got nominated for a Pulitzer Prize for his research on doing, of writing this book that has over 800 references that painstakingly goes through the history of how pharmacology to treat mental illness came into the culture, the effects of all of these studies, and then the long-term efficacy of what happens when you take these meds. And what he found was that the way that these things were introduced to us in the 50s were that they were the equivalent of vaccines, which meant that they would cure in the same way a vaccine cures a bacteria, like the same way that penicillin cures a bacterial infection. We were sold that these psychiatric meds would cure mental illnesses. Before pharmacology was used to treat mental disorders, about 400,000 people in our country were disabled from mental illness. As of three years ago, the census has found that there's 12 million people disabled by mental illness. It's not working.
0: Yeah, it's definitely not working.
1: (laughs) And not only is it not working, but he painstakingly in that book goes through the long-term efficacy studies of these drugs. And what he's found is that if you take any of these things long-term, they actually create a chemical dependence in the brain that makes you more susceptible to the symptoms that you sought to have relieved. And most of the people who begin taking them then take other drugs to manage the side effects of the primary drugs. And this got me, like this exposed the lie that we've been lied to and then i started to look at the dsm and the dsm is the bible that psychiatry uses to even diagnose mental illnesses and the so there's been five versions of the dsm and the first two versions of the dsm the way that it was like presented to the public is that mental disorders are the byproduct of like tensions in the psyche It wasn't the belief that they were mental diseases. But in 1980, the American Psychiatric Association was like going out of business for some cultural reasons. And so the APA is a company and they got together and they changed some laws because they didn't want to go out of business. And one of the laws that they changed was the APA allowed the pharmaceutical companies to begin to pay the, the APA to host symposiums and the APA promised the pharmaceutical companies, you get the final say on whatever the psychiatrists say in these lectures. And the APA was able to pay the psychiatrists to give these lectures. Or the APA allowed the, pharmaceuticals to, the pharmaceutical companies to pay these psychiatrists. <clears throat> and then um, it got to the point where in the early 2000s, a medical journal tried to find a single ac- expert on depression to write an article who had not been paid by the pharmaceutical companies and they couldn't find one. Like it got to the point where all the top psychiatrists in the country who were talking about depression were being paid tens to hundreds of thousands of dollars by the pharmaceutical companies. And many of these researchers weren't reporting to the universities how much they were being paid by the pharmaceutical companies. And a lot of these psychiatrists write the psychiatric textbooks that teaches the next generation of psychiatrists about how to conduct what it is that they do. And it was in 1988 that Prozac first came out. And because this law had been changed in the APA, and essentially the APA got bought, and many of the top psychiatrists got bought by pharmaceutical companies, the year before Prozac came out, the APA issued 4 million flyers to go to all the major like psychiatr- like uh, psychiatrists in the country to tell them how to treat depression. And the, and the company that paid for these 4 million flyers was the company, uh, Eli Lilly, that created Prozac. And the flyer said, essentially, if someone has depression, you use the DSM to diagnose whether or not they have it. And if they have it, you give them an antidepressant. And then Prozac became the most popular and the most sold antidepressive um, solution in history. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> I'm I'm trying to find where to begin to weave this story further because there's so many aspects of this, but. In 1980, I mean, it's a big
0: topic right. and I really appreciate you coming in and, and just trying to kind of get it, right. corral it for us. And obviously you will have your book coming out, with it, which sure. is amazing, but you're doing a fantastic job.
1: Thank you. Uh, so also one of the big things that happened is in 1980, the third version of the DSM was created. And in the third version, they changed the story about what mental disorders were. And they started to make the argument that these are mental diseases. Mm. and the person who oversaw creating the third version of the DSM, it's on record. I have the quotes and it's public knowledge. He admits, there was not a single scientific study between the DSM-2 and the DSM-3 that discovered a biological pathway for any mental disorder. And that he said that it was a hypothesis, that the DSM-3 was based on a hypothesis, that these are diseases but we hadn't yet discovered the biological basis for any of these disorders. And he also admits, and I have the quotes, that there is not a single biological test that you can take that determines with scientific validity that any of the mental disorders in the DSM are diseases. And a really interesting thing to understand is that if we discovered the biological pathway of a mental disorder, it would be reclassified it would be taken out of the the DSM and it would become a disease that internal medicine would treat. And the last time that that happened was when we discovered the biological pathway of syphilis. And when we discovered the biological pathway, it got reclassified from a disorder in the DSM to a disease that a doctor treats. And so the fundamental way that these things are diagnosed um, if we ever discovered the biological pathway, it would be taken out of the book. So anything in the book, by definition, we have not discovered the biological pathway. Um, <clears throat> the caveat that is important to for me to always articulate when I talk about this is that it is incredibly dangerous to get off of one of the, or if you're on any of these medications, it's incredibly dangerous to get off of it cold turkey and that you should do it under the supervision of a doctor that understands this type of thing because what the long-term efficacy studies found is that if you take any of these things more than 6 months they they change the way they they essentially make your brain addicted to the numbing aspect of what these things do and you're actually more susceptible to the symptoms that you had that brought you to taking medication in the first place um mm-hmm. and that what research does find and there was a meta-analysis that looked at like all the best studies that had ever been done on the efficacy of antidepressants and what they found is that the most severely depressed people who score the highest on the hamilton scale that the antidepressants do work slightly better than placebo for a couple of months and that it can serve as a breaking function to help you begin to make the changes in your life that need to be made in order for you to contend with these symptoms. And this this is important to connect to because our current story of mental illness, like the thing to connect to is the fact that we even call it mental health is a reflection of the problem. We We think it's in the mind, but the fact is that we are animals that have an evolutionary history that requires certain fundamental aspects for us to feel healthy. And that if we don't have those things, because we're operating properly, our body will send our mind signals that something is wrong. Depression is a signal. Anxiety is a signal. Bipolar disorder is a signal. Schizophrenia is a signal. It is telling you that something is not going right. And one of the most illuminating aspects of the research is there's a field of ethology, which ethology is the study of like animal nature that looks at what happens when social animals are put into zoos and they develop mental disorders. No animal in the wild, we have, uh, there's no animal in the wild that we have observed has mental disorders, but they acquire them in zoos. And so birds will begin to rip out their own feathers. Elephants will begin to grind their tusks against stone. Um, Some chimps and some bonobos will isolate themselves from the rest of the troop and just go stare off at the wall and will exhibit behaviors of depression. Orcas' fins will start to dip over. And this is a reflection of what is happening to us. We mm-hmm. have evolved to live in tribes of like of being around 80 to 150 people that you see every day, that you hear their breath while you sleep, that you hunt with them, you eat with them, and you contend with the forces of nature with them. We've also evolved to move to walk something like 18 miles a day, like we have evolved to be outside in sunlight and to walk most of the day and to squat. We have not evolved to be inside of cages and we live inside of cages. And when you look at social animals that are put inside of cages, they exhibit mental disorders. And so our current mental health model implies a philosophy of being which states that if you feel anything other than comfort, that there is something wrong with you, as opposed to maybe you've been disconnected from your environment, from your biological needs, from your tribe, from the feeling of transcendence, and from stories that give you hope, and that you are properly functioning if you experience depression or anxiety. Like one of the things that I try to explain to people is it is normal and a part of the human condition to experience what we call depression. It is a part of the human experience to experience what we call anxiety. It is even normal for some people to experience what we call schizophrenia. Like a really interesting thing to connect to is in indigenous cultures, the people that experience the symptoms that we call schizophrenia they were the ones that became shamans. That the culture would actually look for children that were extra sensitive, that would act weird, and then would put them through initiation rituals that would then make them some of the most prestigious characters in the tribe. But in our culture, if you exhibit the symptoms of schizophrenia against your will, you are taken to a mental hospital. And then against your will, you are given anti-schizophrenic meds in most states. I think the only one that this is not true for right now is Alaska, because what happened in Alaska is there was a Harvard-trained lawyer who wasn't sleeping and had a schizophrenic break, was taken to the hospital, was forced to take uh, antipsychotic meds, felt that it was making him sick. And then he eventually took... Um, the mental institution to court and had to get them to prove to the court that what they were doing by giving the antipsychotic meds actually improved the symptoms of schizophrenia. And they couldn't provide research that actually showed that it was effective. And so this lawyer overturned it in Alaska. But in most states, we're at a point now where we can't even find People who haven't been medicated, who have a history of schizophrenia to test new drugs like it's so pervasive that, that um, and it it operates against people's will and <clears throat> one of the one of the parts of this research that when I found it out, I just started yelling in my room when I discovered it because it made me so angry and it was also so like duh is that The way researchers induce depression in mice so that they can study the effects of antidepressants is they don't breed mice who have a genetic disposition to be depressed, which would be what you would assume if the story that we're being told is true, that it's a chemical imbalance. It's not injecting a certain chemical in the mice so that they express this chemical imbalance Because again, you would assume that if the story we're being told was true, that's how they would study it. The way that they induce depression in mice is there's two ways. The first way is they will put the mouse in a container half full of water that's made of glass, and then they will watch the mouse swim until the mouse gives up because there's, there's no way for the mouse to get out. And then once it stops swimming and it gives up, they take it, they put it back in the cage and then they inject it with the antidepressant. And then if they can get the mouse to try again, they see that as evidence that the antidepressant is working. The other way is they will hang the mouse from its tail and the mouse will will try to free itself from the clamp and they'll wait until it gives up. And then once it gives up, they put it back in the cage, they inject it with the antidepressant and then if they can get the mouse to try again, then they say that it works the way that they induce depression in mice is to put them in a hopeless situation. Mm -hmm. They've been doing this for 40 years. And it's like, it's right in front of their face that the thing that induces depression is to put an animal in a situation where it has no hope. Mm -hmm. And it makes me think of this quote by Upton Sinclair. And it's something like, um, a man will go to great endeavors to ignore the truth if his paycheck requires him to do so. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially the situation that we're in. And so there is so much more research here to back up like how fucked up the current story is. But what's more beautiful is like I see that there's a revolution happening. That like it requires a tremendous amount of energy to prop up a system that doesn't work. And it takes no energy for solutions to grow and to spread. And one of the biggest, so I'm working on what I'm calling like a medicine wheel for like the revolution, you know, whereas the old way is a, a textbook <clears throat> that has checklists to tell you how something is wrong with you. I'm a, envisioning a medicine wheel that is almost like a compass, that you can like look at and see, where am I out of balance? And the pillars on that medicine wheel are, the South is your evolutionary biology. Like we are animals. And if you don't have the diet that you've evolved to have, if you don't move your body in the way that it evolved to be moved, if you don't get the biomarkers that you have evolved to require to feel healthy, which would be sunlight, clean water, Like you are going to feel sick and it's not because you're broken. It's because you're disconnected from your evolutionary requirements. So that's the South. The West is community. We are social animals. We have not evolved to be a singular individual. We have evolved to operate inside of a tribe. And the number one, uh, condition that we can measure that has the highest predictor for early death is loneliness. Loneliness is has a higher uh, comorbidity rate than if you're obese, than if you smoke 15 cigarettes a day, than if you're an alcoholic, or if you live in a place with high air pollution. <clears throat> and people are disconnected. And it's something like one in four people report not having a single close friend. That's killing us. And so learning how to cultivate a community is the west part of the medicine wheel. The east is your stories. Like you are a magician and you are creating the story of your life. And a fundamental aspect of being resilient in this world is to learn how to tell beautiful stories. And so like that's where like cognitive behavioral therapy comes in. That's like goal setting and actually achieving the things that you seek to do. And that's the actual mental part of this. And then the North is transcendence. The research on psychedelics as it applies to depression that has been coming out in the last 10 years is some of the most remarkable research that has been done in mental health. A study actually just came out about three or four weeks ago that was... um, funded by Tim Ferriss. And what they found was that psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy is four times more effective at relieving symptoms of depression than our best current antidepressants. Mm -hmm. And that these effects last months to a year after the experience. And what they find is that the, the correlation between the depth Of the feeling of transcendence of the initial experience and the healing that it has on depression is highly correlated. And what that is a reflection of is not something that's happening, that's happening chemically, because it's not happening, it's whatever the chemical effect is, is not continuing to happen a month later or six months later or a year later. It is the experience of the mystical, of the transcendent. And it's why there has been religion in every single culture that has ever existed is because it is is a fundamental need of the human psyche to feel connected to the transcendent. And I think that teaching people what their biological requirements are, teaching people how to connect and function and create a tribe, teaching people how to tell beautiful stories that give them hope and then teaching people techniques to help them connect to the transcendent. Try to be depressed. Try to be anxious. Mm. And also a deeper point here is depression, the feeling of depression is your nervous system telling you something in your life needs to die. Anxiety is telling you that there's something in you that needs to be stronger. Bipolar disorder is, is almost always the function of you have a call coming from inside of you to do something big in the world. And that if you deny it, that feeling will start to haunt you. And then you'll have these big swings between inspiration and this feeling of hopelessness. One of my dreams is to rewrite a new version of the DSM. And instead of it being disorders, That all of it is the whisper inside of you trying to bring you to the life that you are meant to live. And kind of the core idea behind everything that I do is this idea of the daemon. And the daemon comes from Greek mythology. But the idea is that every single soul comes into the world with a sacred task to complete. And um, Plato told the story of the myth of air, And his story was essentially the impact that a soul goes through to get into a body is so violent that it forgets what its sacred task was. But that every soul comes into this life with a guardian, with a guide inside of them. And your daemon remembers what your sacred task is. And your daemon, if ignored, will feel like a demon. And if you are not listening to that call inside of you, it will haunt you. But it's not because you're broken. It's because you're not living your call. And the metaphor that Carl Jung used, that many people use, is that the energy inside of you that knows what you could be is the same energy inside of an acorn that knows it's meant to be an oak tree. And that the daemon is trying to break the seed it's trying to destroy the shell of your ordinary life, of the life that you've lived, ignoring the call to become who you could be. And that our current mental health structure implies that the seed should not be broken. And so we take things that numb the process of the breaking of the shell, but that, that I, that's impeding you from becoming what you are being asked to be. And that the call is to actually allow yourself to transform. And that's why Carl Jung first discovered and really propagated, and then Joseph Campbell made famous, the story of the hero's journey. That The hero's journey is the archetypical story for every human that teaches you essentially how to break out of the seed and to become who you are meant to be. And that until you do, until you say yes to your hero's journey, You will experience what we call mental disorders, but it's not because you are broken. It's because you are an oak tree trying to stay an acorn.
0: Oh my goodness. You are amazing. (laughs) And this work you are doing is so important. And I just honor, I just wanna take a moment to honor and respect and just show reverence to everything you're doing because the world needs this work. The world needs, um, us to be asking questions and people like you to be diving into what the answers to those questions might be. I literally have like a million dots that I can connect. um, And I I do want to share a couple of things because I've also in my own journey discovered it's not just the mental health or mental illness conditions that we refer to, but other physical conditions as well. So one of the things that I have drastically improved um, in my life is asthma I suffered asthma as a child very badly nearly died several times F- faced my own mortality as a child under the age of 10 at least four times was in spent a lot of time in hospital um, and after sitting with ayahuasca once again because of this expansion of my reality this expansion of my consciousness this, opening, I would call it, where I could start to question even more and be even more curious and maybe not just dampen the curiosity down so that I can continue to function in this reality world that we live in, but actually sit with it and dive in. I was able to discover that the asthma I experienced as a child was a physical manifestation of my abandonment wounding that was occurring and of this need for unconditional love that I obviously didn't feel in my everyday existence. But when I had an asthma attack like that, everyone would drop everything and get me to the hospital. And that was how I felt, um, unconditional love. And I have two, both of my parents struggle with alcoholism, um, which tend they were there. My father's passed away now. Um, higher functioning alcoholics, but in the evenings often is obviously the time where people are drinking more and those kinds of, that's what I was having to deal with as a child. And it was always in the evening that I had asthma attacks. Um, and it was now that I look back and I can put all the dots together. I can see this was my cry for love and for help. And when I got to the hospital, I always felt safe because when I was at the hospital, It was almost like as soon as I would arrive, my symptoms would calm. I would still be very unwell, and they would need to do a lot of treatment and all of that. But I could feel my, especially as I got older, I could understand my psyche. I had this. I never believed I would die. I had this, despite how much I heard everyone talking about how bad my asthma was and how much I nearly died and da da da. While I was going through every every asthma attack, I had this. I actually haven't even spoken like articulated this so much in words as I am right now, but I would have this total knowing and trust that once I got to the hospital, everything would be okay. Because it always was, because actually what was happening was I was crying out for unconditional love and the asthma attack was giving me that love. Everyone dropped everything. I got to the hospital. And when I was at the hospital, I wasn't having to deal with anything other than my mom sitting by my bed, loving me and making sure I was okay. I wasn't having to deal with parents arguing, their shadows coming out through their alcoholism and their dysfunctional relationship. I didn't have to deal with any of that because I was in a hospital. Right. Um, usually just with my mum there. So being able to dive into all of that, which ayahuasca and psychedelics really helped me, what you were talking about, the transcendence and the opening of the mind. Um, has led to a great deal of healing of my asthma symptoms. I went a whole year without any. I have experienced some. And I mean, honestly, I'm in a relationship again, which was a big leap for me to take after a whole bunch of other stuff that happened in my life. And I know, at least with, at least I have the awareness now that part of the symptoms that I have now are this fear of abandonment that I am healing and working on. And my symptoms are nowhere near what they used to be. And I'm in a much different place and I'm on my way to healing it completely from my life. But this is when we think about like curative med, like actual curative um, treatment or ability to, do we actually have an ability to cure disease? Do we have that ability? Well, it's not a drug or medication. It's going in and healing that part of ourself where something wasn't right, where we weren't following our calling or something in our, we were in a cage, we were trapped, like freedom is my highest value. And that's something throughout my entire life that I've had to wrangle with. And every time I feel trapped or I'm not in um, feeling free and expansive, something will manifest, whether it's my mental health or whether it's um, my physical health. And I remember when I had my breakdown, I think I have mentioned this on the show, but I, one day I started getting hives all over my body. I mean, I was riddled with anxiety. I was now depressed. I started Googling the, like, what is depression? And I mean, honestly, those symptoms are normal feelings that people experience in their life, but I was experiencing a lot of them. I was having days where I couldn't get out of bed. And one day I broke out in hives and I thought I had a rash. I went to Whole Foods and I was looking up and down. What am I going to do for this rash? Absolute, Probably looked like a wreck. And this woman just pops out of nowhere and I swear to God, she was an angel. And she just looked at me and she's like, can I help you? And I was like, oh, look, I've got this rash. I'm looking for something. And she looked at me and she said, darling, you've got hives. Does something in your life need to change? And I just broke down in tears because I knew, my soul knew the relationship I was in, the city I was living in, everything that I was creating for myself in that moment was against my very being. I didn't want to face it. I didn't want to break up with that person. I didn't want to move. I didn't want to do all the things that meant that the decisions I'd made in my life to get me to that point were like wrong or whatever, which is not the way I frame it now, but they were the stories that I was telling myself at the time. And it was so incredibly painful. Um, but I knew she was right. I knew that was everything I was experiencing. The hives were now finally a physical manifestation of what was going on in my inner world this whole time. Um, but yeah, so I'm just, I'm super grateful for the work that you're doing in the world and and the other people, some of those authors you mentioned, and we'll definitely include the books in the show notes and everything for people who are interested, but this is important work and important knowledge for people to have and questions for us to all ask when it comes to our health, because this is pervasive through the entire medical Western medical system as I, as I have discovered myself. Um, I'm pregnant.
1: Congratulations.
0: <laughs> yeah. I haven't actually mentioned that on the show yet either, but you know, that's been a whole, I'm so grateful for my own experience with asthma and for the conversation you had with us earlier this year that connected a lot of dots with mental health. Because when I became pregnant, I was like, I'm not handing this experience over to the Western medical world. I am going to figure this experience out right. through my <laughs> millennia of women's intuition and the right. magic of my body and i couldn't e- i'm not even going to start i'll do a whole other episode yeah. on what i've discovered through yeah. my research on about childbirth yeah.
1: so you your story articulates a really important amazing point and it's that <clears throat> the first thing to articulate is that western medicine is the greatest in history at dealing with acute physical trauma like a broken bone the best in the world, in, absolutely, in and
0: I am so grateful for the life-saving, right, traumatic care that we have right. in Western medicine. You are spot on.
1: Where we are terrible, maybe the worst, is any chronic illness, whether it be physical or mental. And the really interesting thing about this research is that all of the all of the tactics or techniques or interventions that heal what we call mental disorders, also heal chronic physical disorders. And it's because they're both manifestations of the same thing. Your psyche is not in your mind. It is your entire being. And if there is anything in your life that you know is wrong, that you are not looking at, the physical pathway that it tries to speak to you is through the chronic stress response. Inflammation is the core that feeds most mental disorders and most chronic disorders. And it's the way that our psyche, it's the way our daemon will speak to us if we are ignoring the calls. Like a really powerful thing that you can do is if there's anything in your life, mentally or physically, that feels like a chronic ailment, and you ask yourself, what age did it start at? And then you ask yourself, what happened? And if you just sit genuinely for 30 seconds, something's probably gonna come up. And then the other question is, what in my life am I ignoring that I know I need to face and do something about? And again, if you're genuine, you are going to have a list within a minute. And all of those are things that your daemon is calling you to face that if you're not facing, It's haunting you through chronic illness or a mental disorder. And it's not, quote unquote, your fault, but it is your responsibility. And you have the power to heal these things by facing these things. And one of the things that you talked about, like in the same way that you have thousands of generations of intuitive knowledge alive in you about how to give birth. We all are the descendants of the most badass adaptive animals that have ever existed in the history of the earth. And their genius is inside of us as our intuition. And we like, again, the fact that we call it mental health and mental illness is a reflection that we are so disconnected from our bodies and our intuition is embodied our ancestral intelligence is embodied. It's in our body and it speaks to us through our intuition. And like the tragedy is that our current attempt to heal disorders is all in the masculine, no feminine. And it's like, it's the belief that we are machines and that like a car the way that you fix it is you replace a part. And it's why I feel called to in this, in the book that I'm going to write, um, I want to like, so there's this idea in Jungian psychology that gods are the master stories of a culture. And in the same way that a God possesses you, if you believe a story, you act it out. And the way that you worship a story, the way that you worship a God is that you believe it. And if you believe it, you will act it out. And the book is going to be called Twilight of a Titan. And I'm going to tell the story of the old model being Kronos. And Kronos was the King Titan who, because he didn't want to give up his power, he would eat his children. And the child that eventually avoided being eaten and went off in a cave and grew up and then overthrew him was Zeus. I want to, retell that story. And instead of it being a man, I want it to be a woman and I'm going to call her Hermea. and that Hermea is going to be the story of the revolution and that it is feminine because what's going to heal us is learning how to connect to our intuition, to our body intelligence that is millions of years old, that is alive in us right now. And we don't have a cultural schooling education system that teaches people how to listen to their intuition and so a big part of the revolution is like teaching people how do you listen to your intuition like a couple of things to connect to is you don't get to choose who you admire like if you you really connect to that for a moment there is something inside of you that is beyond your conscious choice that seizes either a character in a movie or a person in the world that is doing something that inspires you. That's one of the ways that your intuition talks to you. A huge part of the revolution is teaching people how to listen to their dreams. If you understand how to listen to your dreams, your dreams will let you know what the fuck you're doing wrong every night. And when you connect to what a dream is, there is a part of you that effortlessly creates worlds that are indistinguishable from your waking reality. It tricks you every night because its ability to create a world is so powerful that you just step into it effortlessly and you're like, yeah. And that this thing that dreams for you can teach you things you don't know. Like if you connect to the fact that there is something happening inside of you right now that is alive, that is watching your life, that understands you, And that knows things you don't know and teaches you those things through creating worlds. And we just fucking most people just look past it. And it's like the current culture, like the current academic disposition towards dreams is that it's kind of nonsense and it's just your brain processing memories. And it's like, even if that were true, the phenomenology of a dream, is one of the most divine things that we have any evidence of, but because it happens every night effortlessly, we just pass over it. So there's that. Then there's your illnesses are actually, your chronic illnesses are actually ways that your intuition speaks to you. And that our our cultural story is so disconnected from even having that viewpoint that like our response to it is to try to kill it by taking things that numb us and like the invitation is, if you learn how to listen to your intuition, if you learn how to interpret your dreams, if you learn how to follow what you admire and what inspires you, and then you answer the call of that whisper by doing whatever your Dharma is or your creative work, like I believe that it makes you almost invincible too. It's not that you won't experience what we call mental disorders or chronic illnesses, <clears throat> but that you'll know how to respond to it in a way where it will go away until you get off course again. Like the thing to connect to is you're doing a dance, your life is this dance. And whenever you get too off rhythm, the way that your body intelligence speaks to you is through these symptoms but it's to bring you back into rhythm. And instead of numbing the message and continuing to go further and further out of rhythm, whenever you experience something like depression, it's episodic. It's, it's for a short time because you will respond to it in a way where it brings you back into rhythm and then you don't have the symptom anymore. And it changes the philosophy of what it means to be a human. You are not meant to not feel these things. You are meant to feel these things when you are off balance. And that if you learn how to respond to them, they bring you back to balance. They're actually your allies. There's a great quote that I will eventually learn by heart. But the core of it is every misfortune and bad thing that has happened to you has been designed you for you to bring you back to who you are. That thing that creates these experiences loves you so much. And that this is the only thing that it knows how to do to bring you back to who you are. All of these are for you.
0: I feel that so much. And it can be difficult when we're going through something to keep the faith. But if we can, it's like a knowing that this is all happening for me. And this is going to bring me back on course, which brings me to a good segue. I think I would love to, <laughs> if you're down, I would love to understand where you're at in this moment on your journey, because as you just so eloquently wrapped up, because we know this stuff doesn't preclude us from having to experience it. I think what happens is we can come back to center faster. So how right. does this, or is this, or any of it showing up for you and and. Talk us through like where you're at with that.
1: Yeah. So this is actually a beautiful example of um, for the last couple of months, I've been in a tumultuous relationship uh, that I can feel is not serving me. And that uh, some truth came out about two and a half weeks ago that really put the nail in the coffin of the idea that I'm going to have a romantic relationship with this person. And literally the next day I got sick for two weeks and um, I had a couple of days where I genuinely felt depressed, where I just didn't want to do anything. But because of the research that I've done and because of the belief that I have, I embraced it as this is a symbolic moment where I am dying to be reborn as a new person, who no longer has the same story about this relationship. And like the newsletter that I wrote on Friday like was me simply admitting that I felt depressed and that I was sick and that I was feeling it fully. Here's here's the really deep, one of the most important things that I've learned that is one of the things that's most misunderstood that if understood would help people the most. And it's that the way through any challenge is to feel it fully. And most of us, and it's embedded in our cultural story. It's that if you feel anything that you don't want to feel, you shouldn't be feeling it and you should do something or take something that will reduce feeling it. But it seems to be that the way that the psyche works, is that in order to heal something, you have to feel it fully. And that one of the insights is there is a part of your psyche that is just the witness that has not ever been sad, has not ever been angry, but has witnessed your anger, has never been wounded, but has witnessed your traumas. That part is invincible and it is able to perceive anything and that is the thing that if you learn how to connect to has the potential to liberate you but to be liberated you're going to have to go through every feeling that you've ever incurred that you've never felt and so for me like if you can find what your art is that is your vehicle to feel your shit fully and so for me it's writing and so when I found out this news about my ex-partner, I was numb for about three days. I could feel that I was numb. I, and I could feel that the numbing was to protect me from the bigness of the feeling. But by the act of writing, which is my craft, I it broke through the numbness and I wept as I wrote for like an hour. And the thing is, is I deleted almost everything that I wrote, but the act of writing allowed for the purging. And I had a fucking mountain of snot rags next to my computer, but I could feel like, oh, I have just felt this fully. And mm-hmm. that this is also why there's so much trapped trauma in our culture, it is that our we believe that if we feel something, it's that we shouldn't feel it fully. And so it just sits like a tumor in our energetic body. But the only way to digest the tumor is to eventually feel the thing fully. And so um, I feel like I'm out of the depression, I'm out of the illness, and it's because I felt it fully and that it's done. And I can feel that there are still hooks in me towards her. There's a part of me that knows That if I don't do what my daemon is asking me to do, I will incur more hardships in the future until I let it go fully. And so I have some tests ahead of me for the next like six weeks at least. But instead of numbing, I'm going to look at it and face it fully and feel whatever comes up.
0: Mm. Well, thank you so much for so vulnerably sharing that. And I think what comes to me (laughs) as well is honoring our own process and that also it's not a matter of I'm going to sit down right this moment and feel it all and then be done with it. It's not that simple either. And sometimes that um, cycle happens a number of times, you know, and maybe the first time is the most painful and the second time it's a bit less, or sometimes it happens three times and the fourth time is the one where it's really, really painful. I had an experience just this year about three or four months ago where my ex-husband who I split up with three years ago and I, and I left and, and I was the one that wanted to end that relationship. Um, but th- there's still grief with that. He finally let me go <clears throat> and I could feel the energetic cord was actually cut wow. and a whole new wave and layer of grief came up and I allowed it. I just gave myself space for two or three days and <laughs> the knowledge of it doesn't make it feel any less. It was fucking horrible. And I had moments where I was like, is this ever going to not feel like this? And have I made all the mistakes in my life? And should I just be back with that man? And, you know, all these weird things that were totally not relevant to my current situation or reflective of my current situation at all. But it was old grief that just still needed to come out because it hadn't had space. So it's fascinating Um, how the process works and to be compassionate and kind with ourselves as we go through it. And sometimes it happens really amazingly fast. Like something will just happen and you're like, whoa, boom, like the story's untold and I'm free of it. And other times, like in my experience, it it takes these iterations and it can take years. Um, When we're dealing with stuff from our childhoods, You know, we probably spend our whole lifetime unpacking and releasing some of that stuff. But um, I just love what you shared and your process. And I really appreciate you for sharing it and being so vulnerable. Um, and I think it's just testament to the more curious our minds can be and the more open we can be to all of this stuff and to gather our tools that we can move through these things with more grace. It, and right. and that sounds like a strange word because sometimes it doesn't feel very graceful with the pile of snot rags, but actually it is graceful it does, that yes. w- we are holding ourselves through the pain and we are allowing and we are not just numbing which i also think was interesting you said you were numb for 3 days and i think to realize that our our own system also has an ability to numb us to some degree and maybe 100%. that's all the numbing we need like it, we have an ability to shut some things down so that we can keep functioning for a few days or weeks or sometimes years while the underlying system 100%. gets used to this new knowledge and this new thing. We don't necessarily need to turn to other drugs and substances um, to do it. And that that kind of, uh, what would you call it? Like the biological intuitive response is reasonable and justified and useful.
1: 100%. And if we allow it, yeah. So- There we go. Um, I would recommend anyone who's interested in understanding trauma to check out my podcast, What is Trauma? But one of the things I learned writing that article is one of our evolutionary drives that is instilled in us from thousands of generations of being animals is to disassociate when the pain is too high. And that our psyche has an intuitive knowing that sometimes the best response is to numb until the ego has enough resources to process whatever the wound is. And this is also why, like, if you do have addictions or you are taking some of these medications or these drugs, you're not wrong. But you are going, if you're ever going to heal, you're going to have to feel whatever it is fully eventually. And the invitation is, to do the things that will build up the resiliency of the ego so that the ego can experience it. And that could be like changing your diet. It could also be find two or three people in your life that you can cultivate a true, genuine relationship with where they can hold space for you. Maybe it's to do something like ayahuasca or mushrooms where you make a connection with the transcendent and you learn that you are so much more capable than you have been taught by culture. But that whatever it is, there's an intuitive knowing in your psyche about what you're able to hold. And whatever comes up, it's because your psyche believes that you're capable and able to hold it.
0: Amazing. Thank you for articulating once again so eloquently what I try to say. (laughs) Um, That article you wrote on trauma is really fantastic. Um, So I definitely will include that in the show notes as well. But... Um, Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you for sharing your intellect and your wisdom and the work that you have done. And thank you for sharing, you know, how it transform, how it translates and shows up in your life personally as well, because I think it's just so beautiful for people to hear that, you know, just because we might become experts in an area doesn't mean we don't still have a relationship with that area of our life. 17 years as a finance expert, I still have a relationship with money. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, And it
1: tends to be that we become experts in exactly the wounding that we've had, that we've had to become experts in to get through it.
0: Totally. Yeah. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm excited for your book. This wheel that you talked of is so profound and I'm excited to see more content coming out. I'm guessing the book's going to be a lot about that as well, but I'm sure you'll have some incredible content coming out about that stuff. So,
1: Yeah. Cause it's going to be a minute until the book comes out. So I'll be sharing lots yeah. of stuff through the podcast and the article and Instagram and all that shit.
0: Yeah, and do sign up for Godzi's newsletter. It's one of my one of the few that I read every single week. So love, you. love your thoughts. And I know there's going to be a lot of people excited for this episode. So thank you so much for your time today, brother. Thanks for coming on. You are a king. Thank you
1: so much. I was just about to say thank you, Queen, for having me on. <laughs> You're crushing it. And it's really awesome to see your transformation through the last two years of knowing you. Thank you. I'm sure
0: you loved that episode as much as I did. My marketing manager, Theodora Gatin, who I actually just had on the other podcast, Conscious Culture, um, has been diving into everything Eric Godsey and she saw him on my um, calendar booked in. She was like, oh my goodness, I can't wait to hear this episode. So yeah, it was as good as I expected, probably better than I expected. He's amazing. I'm sure you loved it as much as I did. As I mentioned briefly there, the other podcast I have is Conscious Culture. If you do enjoy my conversations, these kind of transparent, open, vulnerable, expansive conversations I'm having with people here, jump on over to Conscious Culture where we do the same thing from a company culture, work career perspective. Um, I interview and talk with leaders and just incredible people on their thoughts about the evolution of culture and how consciousness is coming into our professional lives. And it's really just some fantastic conversations with thought leaders. I'd also love to have you on the show if you resonate with that, if you have thoughts about company culture, the way work is transitioning and transforming in our world, or if you know anyone, please recommend them to me. I love having these conversations. I love bringing my healing, my transformation, my spirituality into my company and into my business. And it has been incredible for our organization um, and for my new company, Grow Motley, as well. Building a new team from the ground up with this same kind of framework is just... It's so fantastic to see how much engagement... Happiness, positivity, and ultimately performance we get as a team when we view the organization as its own conscious entity that we are all working to support, to grow, and to bring. And when I can bring my whole self to my team and share with them all the highs and the lows and have a cry in a team meeting here and there and whatever it might need to be, um, it has just such incredible power. So hop on over, check Conscious Culture. If you like it, give us a five star review. On that, if you like this podcast, share it, give me a five-star review. That would be amazing. That helps spread the word and helps get this podcast to continue to be out there helping and healing so many. Thank you, loves.